Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in. The Turn and Talk podcast is an education-focused podcast that gives you an inside look into today's schools, classrooms, and the minds of educators in the words of real but anonymous classroom teachers and school staff. The mission of Turn and Talk podcast is to give the education mic back to those who actually do the important work of educating our children, the teachers, the school administrators, and the support staff. I'll invite them to our show and ask them questions, and you will hear their responses without filter. Wow, what a story. So much in this episode to chew on and digest. Bottom line is the job of a teacher is really, really hard, and a lot of things make it even harder. The pressure of test scores, effective classroom management in the first couple of years and maybe more, teacher training, the students' reading achievement levels, what should be included in the curriculum, teacher evaluation process, parent involvement, and much, much more. All of these topics came up in our conversation with our guest today who shares her wonderful and inspiring teacher experiences with us. She's incredibly transparent, intelligent, and humble. I've found so much in her story I could relate to, and I hope you will too. Enjoy the show. Our guest today has been in education for over a decade. She's been a teacher, a teacher team leader, a curriculum designer, and an instructional leader. We're lucky to have the opportunity to hear your story today. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Well, we'd love to start by first hearing a little bit about your story. How did you end up in education? I did not intend to ever be a teacher. In fact, I decidedly did not want to ever be a teacher. My mom was a teacher. But during college, I was recruited by an alt-cert program. I was invested in the idea of being part of something that could have a real impact on the trajectory of people's lives, especially in disadvantaged communities. That's how I got involved. And when you say alt-cert, can you describe the kind of program that is? What happens in that program? I didn't go to school for education, so this was a program that trained me in the basics of education, gave me a temporary certification to teach while I went to school to get a master's in education and secure a more permanent license. So you were going to school to learn how to teach while also teaching at the same time. That's right. My first two years in the classroom, I was also a student myself. Wow, and how was that? It was busy. I wouldn't describe the program I attended for my master's degree as particularly rigorous, so it wasn't the most demanding coursework, but just being a classroom teacher for the first time, especially with no prior education or experience, you can attest to how busy that is. So anything extra seems like more than possible. And what was your prior experience? You did this alternate route program straight out of college? Yeah, I was 21, uh, 22 when I started teaching. My background was in music. I went to school for performing and ultimately taught ELA in middle school. E- English language arts. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you teach all, all grades in your early years, 6th, 7th, and 8th? I always taught 6th grade when I was leading my own classroom. At first, I taught humanities, which was a combination of English, reading, writing, and also social studies, which at that time was ancient history. And then later, I went on to teach just reading, but always You said something earlier about not ever really wanting to be a teacher. So what changed your mind about it? Did you learn something or read something that made you want to enter the classroom? I didn't ever want to be a teacher because I think what I defined teaching to be was in a more privileged community. And so that 
to me, like the teachers who I had experience with growing up didn't strike me as people that I wanted to aspire to for the most part. It seemed like people who had gone to my high school and then didn't leave the town and stayed there and got a job teaching at the same high school they had gone to. I don't know, there's nothing wrong with that, but I just had this grand vision for accomplishing some sort of great mission. So teaching didn't seem like the way to do that, but I did always want to change the world somehow. I had some vision for making an impact, but didn't quite know how I was going to make that impact. So when I was recruited and it was presented as a way to affect change in a way that is similar to the civil rights movement, but for our generation, I was sold because I could finally find the avenue to make the kind of impact I had always dreamed of making. And it was presented as anybody who was a strong leader could be an effective teacher. So I thought my experience would be enough to make me effective in the classroom. Yeah, that's really interesting to me because uh, what you were saying before that, before starting the classroom as a teacher, you were, you studied music. How did that transition happen? I wasn't particularly passionate at first about teaching, reading, and writing. I was passionate about teaching, period. I envisioned meeting students who were years behind and being able to close this gap so that non-readers would be readers and they'd have all sorts of different life outcomes. Math for me was not a strong suit, so reading seemed like a place where I had the skills to still have an impact. I had studied abroad in college in Rome, so teaching ancient history felt exciting to me, having just been there a couple of years before and studied a lot of ancient history myself. So being in the sixth grade humanities classroom at first seemed like a dream role. How did your mom take it since she was a teacher also when she heard that you wanted to do this? Was she over the moon or? You know how moms are always being like, I told you so. <laughs> yeah, I think she was got some sort of victory, some sense of victory out of the whole thing. But I lived at home when I first started teaching. And so she saw me in in those first days and weeks of teaching really struggling. I think for her it was insane to consider somebody not going to ed school and then just jumping into a classroom because she had taken the traditional route to become a teacher. So once we got into the into the weeds, I think she, she felt sad for me. But I was lucky to have her there to just provide advice along the way at the beginning. That's funny because I, I would never ever even consider seeking advice from my mom about <laughs> teaching even if she were, were a teacher but it sounds like you felt like she was a, some kind of a support in that really tough first year that almost all teachers have i don't know you're right you know to an extent because i had this air about the route that i took that it was like my experience was different than anything she had experienced so i did feel like she couldn't connect to what I was doing and like things are different now that kind of thing but ultimately you're grading papers and you're like I don't know how to calculate the score and she pulls out a little tool where you like move the paper and it shows you this many questions out of this many questions equals this and like it just like is a quick little thing and it's like ultimately you need those kind of practical tips to just have somebody tell you this is how you structure a grade book or whatever so I think the basics were helpful so, so this kind of goes back to that at school comment you made you felt it wasn't very rigorous do you think your at school or your at school experience really taught you some of those skills i learned everything from 
the mentors at my school. Um, there were some great models within the alt cert training that I learned from. And I attended lots of professional development as one does as, as you're new at something. So I found my education in that way. I think my program was just designed to make it feasible for somebody in an alt cert program to get their master's and be learning how to teach for the first time. So it was just like meant to be a bare bones. I think if you had gone to that school as a normal master's candidate, you would have had a better experience. Were there any moments of joy in in the first or first couple of years in the classroom? Definitely. So I loved my first class like they were my own kids. Um, So just getting to know them and really, I mean, I really just loved them so much and I poured myself into those kids. Just every hour of my day was, was them and they were the same crew as my advisory and then I saw them for two hours of humanities instruction. I saw some of them for another miscellaneous ELA class that I taught two days a week. I spent a lot of time with that group. They were my testing group. So those kids, those relationships that I built still exist today. And that was 12 years ago, I guess. Those kids still love to hear from me and they still remember who I I am. So I think there's something to be said for that. It was a lot of blood, sweat and tears. Those first two years, I remember crying in front of my kids. So some of those tears were live. But I think it meant the most of all the years teaching. Those first two years meant the most because I felt it was possible. If I could only figure out how to do it, I could have this impact on these students' lives. Yeah, that would change their lives forever, that they would have access to opportunity in a way that they wouldn't otherwise. So I think just like I really believed at that time I'm fighting for civil rights. Like that was I was so passionate about that, that it was so meaningful. The work every day was so meaningful. And what was the school like? It sounds like obviously you were at a place where you felt you could make change and make a positive impact. So describe your first school to us a little bit. I was working at a low income public school, primarily free and reduced lunch. The school, the students were a mix of Puerto Rican, Dominican and African-American. The school was very poorly run at that time it was teachers had a lot of autonomy which is great but also as a first year teacher terrifying because there's no systems for discipline everything you did you had to create on your own there was no school-wide system there were two floors and I was on the floor where there were not administrative offices, so there was rarely a leadership presence. And the teachers on that floor, many of them were also very green and had limited classroom management skills. So kids were running the show down there. They were running in the halls. They were everywhere. I was at the end of the hall, and next to me was a self-contained 12 to 1, 12 to 1 to 1 class and I remember that the kids were almost always in the hallway and they would like peer in the windows and be distracting to my class. I know I saw things in that first year that I thought like maybe I was going to see a kid die in front of me. Like there was just like fighting all the time in the classroom, out of the classroom, in the hallway. It was really terrible. I didn't know about, not that I didn't know about curriculum design, but I didn't, I hadn't done it and I knew what a first year teacher knows. So 
I well, first year teacher without any ed school. So I just didn't have anything. So I was just writing as I was going. I, I knew what un, I knew what backwards planning was, but I found out in September when the year was starting. So I didn't have time to backwards plan anything. So I was just going forward. I think we read the novel Holes for like maybe six months. It took <laughs> us so long. Um, the unit that never ends. Yeah, never. It was just... I don't know. There were lots of ideas. There were lots of lofty ideas that were always changing coming from either the team leads or or leadership um, in terms of like how we were going to organize instruction. I didn't even know I had to take attendance until like November. It was just... <laughs> yeah, I definitely would would continue the lesson. If I didn't finish a lesson, I would continue it the next day. So I could write lesson plans and they would last for days because the management <laughs> was so bad. I rarely got teaching done. I remember a few things that are hilarious to look back on. Like I remember that I would I could get kids to be quiet and they were just like so loud. They were just talking and talking. It was like I was not speaking. So I would just sing. I remember actually... <laughs> Your music training. Yeah, I was standing, <laughs> I was squatting on a counter where I was, I think, like trying to point to a, the word wall that was up there and they weren't listening and I just started singing and I was just like this sad little figure <laughs> sitting on this counter singing and eventually the kids all got quiet and they were like, you know, what are you doing? And I was like, I just knew you would stop to listen. So what now did, what I did you sing, say, do you remember? No, I don't remember. I don't remember. It should have been a gospel hymn. I needed some divine support. Yeah, you should have saved that song for all new teachers to sing yeah. in time of need. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it was crazy. I also remember my second year teaching that there were kids who would just make noises. Like, um, like uh, you know, like and just hold it for yeah. a long, long time. So after a while, you just you lose your mind. You really can't go on. And I remember doing things like, we are learning over here. So if you want to learn, you can come sit with those over here. And if you don't, then you just stay over there. And like, that was a choice that I gave children. Like, if you don't want to learn today, you can stay over there. I don't know. Lots of things went on. Those first two years are rough. Yeah, but then let's fast forward a little bit. Apparently, you know, experienced a lot of success later on in the, in the next school. Yeah. So about that. I wanted to teach in an environment where they had the structures my first school did not. So I thought if I go teach at a school where they have the support, they have the training for teachers, I could then see if it's possible to affect change, to make this transformative impact. I mean, I had, like I said, made incredibly long-lasting relationships with kids in those first two years, and that matters, but that's not going to make the transformative impact on their life, so that's what I was in it for. And so, though I did do good things in that building, I became the grade team lead and all that, I just felt like a failure because I didn't have the numbers to prove it. So my next school, my goal was to be in an environment that was more supportive, thinking then I can actually see if I can teach and I can really do this. So it it's funny, this measurement of success in teaching, and I know it depends on where you are, but in my experience, if you're smart and you work hard, people are willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. And so at my next school, 
I learned a lot about teaching. I got a lot better. I could definitely run a lesson. I learned about curriculum development, uh, learned how to really write high quality questions. Common Core came into play. So we all learned about having text-based questions and informational texts and close reading and all that stuff. I learned a lot. And I became a leader in my school where I was the strongest ELA teacher in the school. And I was also, again, grade team lead. So constantly providing more like administrative support, even though I was also a teacher. I became somebody that the principal would take visitors to come see. But my measure of success has always been the numbers because that's why I got into the work. And so I can't say that I ever saw those numbers. And by numbers, you mean student test scores? It can be measured in lots of ways, a state test, or maybe if you give, I would always give reading assessments like Fontas and Pinnell to measure student reading levels. And of course, the state test bears the most weight. But yeah, I never saw the state test numbers be impacted as a classroom teacher. Even the internal assessments that we would create that were similar in style to the state test, my students didn't do well. And that measure of success that mattered most to me is not one that I could ever really make work out as as a classroom teacher. But I... I mean, there are other measures of success. Like I said, people deemed me to be successful. So they appreciated that I could manage my room, that kids were learning in there, that, you know, you went in my room and there were really rich discussions going on. And those aha moments that you look for as a teacher, it just wasn't the thing that mattered to me. So it, I couldn't keep going doing that. I'll also say that the management for me it got easier over time. And eventually, when I became a, a mother, I finally stopped making it as emotional. Uh, it was always personal to me, the management thing. So I learned to control it, but I felt angry still. And at, in my last year teaching, some of that finally went away when I had a school-aged child, but never completely. I found the management to be just really draining. That was not something that I ever completely got over. So I, I think that's what made me want to leave being a lead teacher. Wow. And then, so at this school, you said you were also, you were a lead teacher and a great team lead. And then you decided to transition out of that role eventually. And let's skip ahead to where you are now. What are you doing now? So I'm now I'm an administrator at a middle school with a literacy focus at a charter school as well. And I, I began in curriculum development through the experience I developed at the previous school and had fine-tuned. So my expertise is in reading in classroom libraries and curating text and crafting knowledge-based, novel-based units and lessons for for literacy instruction. I oversee the literacy department at my school, and so I observe teachers, support them in their curriculum implementation, and just drive the vision for literacy at the middle school where I work. What do you think about teacher evaluation in your role now? How do teachers view your support how do you view your support and how do you view teacher evaluation in general i believe in teacher evaluation systems i believe in accountability for teachers i believe in some level of job security but not promise job security unless you prove your effectiveness so i like that at the school 
where I work, there is accountability built in. There's clear expectations for how a teacher will be evaluated. What I think works is that the criteria is based on, or I should say the evaluation is based on peer reviews, on student reviews, and on leadership reviews. And so it's like a 360 evaluation, which I think research recently has supported that practice. But I do bear the most weight as I write the evaluation and my observations are quoted in the evaluation and therefore when I observe teachers it doesn't feel like a support it feels like an assessment teachers don't come to me for help because they they fear it will be held against them so I'm not a coach I'm an evaluator and I think there's pros and cons to that I, I happen to work with veteran teachers who know their craft really well. But it does make it difficult to try to rally a team to accomplish goals when it doesn't feel like we're all in it together because it's like an us and them. How do you balance that, you know, knowing what you, with your own experience, how you developed over the couple of years and how things were challenging. Teaching was very challenging in the beginning. And how do you reconcile that with now being in a role where you have to evaluate performance, knowing that there's so many things at play that affect teacher effectiveness? It's hard to say because my experience as a teacher was preferable at my second school where... I was teaching, I had a lot of coaching, the school environment worked, I could come in, try something every day, and I had coaches in the room who weren't always my evaluator. And the evaluation wasn't as high stakes because you weren't just fired if you didn't have a certain score on your eval. Everybody basically got a passing score on their eval unless you were really messing up. And people did lose their jobs. Not everybody came back, but if you were competent, you were returning and there was a high level of of performance expected but the group where I the staff where I was where they were high performing but I think results do matter and so I was comfortable as a teacher but my comfort is not the goal of an education system so I think student learning is important I mean test scores can't be the only measure of what student learning is because they're unpredictable and they're not definitively connected to what students learn in the classroom and not all subjects are tested so it's it's inequitable but I do think that needs to to come into play at least from a growth metrics perspective if not from proficiency it feels like anytime you you hear about American education American public schools you hear there's a, there's a sense of pessimism and there's also a sense of a broken system like there's this it's, it's not right it's it's wrong there's it's broken or it's damaged or it's beyond repair or you know we have a high number of parents choosing to homeschool their children that numbers keeps increasing every year it sounds like and do you ever feel like there's something wrong with our education system I don't know if there's something wrong with our education system. I don't view it in the same way that I did before. I don't think that great teachers alone are enough to close the gap of those who live in poverty and those who don't. I I haven't seen that just putting a smart person in a room and having them become a teacher is enough to change opportunities. I think it's gotta be a bigger solution than that. So I don't think it's broken. 
I think it's not enough for low-income communities alone. By by not enough, you mean in terms of life outcomes. If one of the desired goals for an education system is to improve life outcomes for the citizenry, then are you saying that education isn't the only factor? I think so. I mean, that's been my experience is that it's not enough to completely level the playing field, even when you have really great teachers. So I've seen really great teachers and I I haven't seen it always result in great student results. So ultimately, we want kids to have an equal chance, right? Like that American dream of pull yourself up from your bootstraps. We want everybody to have the bootstraps. And I still see kids graduate middle school who are not going to be able to read their high school textbook. And so what is that going to look like when they enter the job force? They don't have the same chance that kids in the high income community have. They're not, they're sure there are kids in the high income schools who can't read either, but not at the levels we see in low-income community. I teach in middle school and obviously I have, I see that a lot also. But students who are like, let's say four or five grade levels behind, a student enters sixth grade, but they're reading at a third grade level. Have you seen a lot of uh, those students actually closing that gap and, and then getting to the proper grade level? I haven't seen it overwhelmingly occur. That's the data that I've that I've been referring to, which has been disappointing. It does happen. Mm-hmm. And kids do make growth. It's just not enough growth to close the gap. So what I think works is teaching reading in a way that really matters because it's tied to something concrete. At this point in my career, I believe that that is, is content knowledge, that, student, that students should learn how to read and write when they're learning about something that matters. So I prefer units that are grounded in some historical or scientific subject matter that students will develop expertise in and then be able to build their capacity to read. I know that kids can read better when they have more of the vocabulary within a specific domain developed. So a kid who is a low-level reader, but a, you know, this popular research study, but is a great baseball player, can read a high-level text about baseball that a so-called great reader might not be able to comprehend if they don't have the baseball experience. So I think that developing an expertise helps kids read the text that they can, that they should be reading on level. I think kids need to be reading grade level appropriate texts. Like there was a study that came out from the new teacher project called the Opportunity Myth about how kids just don't succeed when they are getting work on their level and on their level means far below grade level. It just, they never get to the place where they're seeing the the grade level work then and when we're doing them a disservice by never giving them that chance. So I think that's important. I think having kids write with a genuine audience matters. I think having social justice be a component of your curriculum to the extent that it's possible to include it, that you can make space for it, that students see how their reading and writing and learning can have an impact on that world around them. I think that's really powerful. And I think you need more than just 
reading teachers to be working on literacy. It has to go beyond just the 45 minutes or the 90 minutes if you have it in your day that's a reading class. I mean, I don't believe in schools that just wash out their whole curriculum and make the whole day math and reading with science and social studies for a month each year like a unit. I think those those content area teachers are providing the knowledge and information that are going to help our kids be able to read because they'll have that foundation in anything that they want to read about. So we need those content teachers. We need those content classes to still happen. And to the extent that those teachers view themselves as literacy teachers as well, it provides opportunity for transferring of those literacy skills you're trying to build in the ELA room into the other context. You said there's not 45 minutes isn't enough. Uh, other contents are necessary. It made me also think about things and experiences outside of school. How do you see parents as partners in the education attainment of children? What do you see their role as? This is really dependent on your school day, I think. But ultimately, kids learn the most from, I think, the environment that they're brought up in. And I think parents play a huge role in what their kids know based on where they take them, what they talk to them about, what routines they set up at home. However, so often in low-income communities, kids have extended school days where they have very little time with their families because they're in school for so long and then they go home and they have a tremendous amount of homework so they don't actually have as much opportunity to engage not only with their families but even the extracurricular activities that families allow their kids to participate or arrange for their kids to develop their identity and their interests and their talents outside of what a school offers during the day so when school gets out at three families have more opportunity to impact this whole parents as partners thing I mean as a parent myself, I see how limited my time is with my kids after my work day is over. And there's a limit to what I can accomplish in those couple of hours I see them. And when homework is heavy, I have even more opportunity to enrich their knowledge, I guess, and learning. Parents, it's important for parents to message that's their expectations for the students' participation in school. Yeah, I guess I see that it's part of what I think is the difference is just the kind of the information and knowledge that you gain where when you live in a certain type of family in a certain type of home versus the information that you receive in a family where you have less access to resources or where your family your parents are not as present because they're working and not that one knowledge is better than the other one set of experiences is more carries more cultural capital and so it is privileged you're saying one one might not agree with its privilege yet it is a currency with which many people find success and if you don't have that currency or those ex in the form of those experiences then it becomes even more challenging for you to find the opportunities that are already limited by your circumstance. Right. I mean this is a tangent but this is the the battle that comes up often in the world of of knowledge based literacy that I, I'm in as well. Like, okay, well, who decides what the knowledge is that students should be learning? And often some of the best knowledge-based curriculums, it feels like a very Euro Eurocentric view of history. And so it's a, it's a, the experts are constantly defending that battle uh, or defending the argument of one set of knowledge has more cultural weight. So to provide access, you have to give all kids that information that has more currency. But at the same time, 
there's damage done by not allowing kids to see themselves in a curriculum or see themselves in their learning. I also feel the challenge with that is the school can only give so much of that knowledge, right? So a lot of the knowledge that the proponents of of this model are proposing is usually knowledge, you know, of the of the more privileged sects in the society. But in those sects, there's a concerted, there's this concept of, of concerted cultivation, right? Where the school is giving a certain amount of knowledge and, and cultural currency, but at home, similar or larger amounts of that is being given as well. So there is, even if the schools were starting to give a lot of that cultural knowledge, the children who don't have that at home will still be behind in some ways, because in a less privileged family, for example, the it might be a single parent, they might have multiple jobs and they may not be able to take their kids to the extra trips to the museums, to the libraries, to the sports events and the recreational activities like music, dance and martial arts, etc. So there's still that part missing. So it's kind of like a lose-lose situation, but I suppose this model that you're describing is saying that at least make an effort at schools to be able to give as much as possible to all children. Yeah, the argument is that by giving all kids the same information with which we're asking them to then write or to use to defend their arguments, we're leveling the playing field. On that note, one last question, and that question is, if you could wave a magic wand or ch- and change a thing in our education, system today or add something to it to make it better what would it be uh, the magic wand i would like is to figure out how to make reading growth happen as definitively as math growth because <laughs> you can really see numbers move in math the schools have figured that out it's concrete you are, you know it or you don't but reading is just a harder nut to crack it is really hard to figure out what it is that kids need to be able to do to read and so i would love to wave a magic wand to make reading growth as possible well we hope that you and others like you will one day figure that out for us thank you so much thank for you this for conversation it was really really awesome to hear your story and that's all for today's episode folks thank you for tuning in turn and talk podcast is your one-stop shop for learning about what is actually happening in schools today directly from the people who are working in today's schools the support for this podcast comes from listeners like yourself people who are interested in the present and the future of education so feel free to head on over to our patreon page at patreon.com slash turn and talk podcast we invite you to also follow us on instagram at turn and talk podcast if you haven't subscribed yet please go ahead and do that too so that all future episodes are available to you upon release and downloaded immediately to your device if you have questions thought feedback or if you work in a school and would like to take the mic back please please email us at turnandtalkpodcast at gmail.com thank you for tuning in this is your host jay mcsuits signing out peace